warm greetings from the Denver Unamended Christadelphian Ecclesia, and thank you for an opportunity to participate in your Bible school this week. Our topic this week are prophecies, the visions of Zechariah, and these end times. I've added these end times because I don't want to rotely take you through these seven visions which so many of you are familiar with, some more so than, than others perhaps. But to add these end times means I want to make it relevant to what's going on geopolitically and especially involving the nation of Israel. Um, these prophecies are some of my most favorite. Vivid imagery like Daniel and the Apocalypse, and much of the prophecies of both of those prophets are fulfilled in the Apocalypse. So we want to use these seven visions which are conclusive in themselves. Think of them as a windmill, and they have the capacity to pull into them and therefore represent a divine completion in their own little entity. And then from that, we want to be branching out in considering various topics, which uh, at, at my election, uh, I'll develop more than others. At first blush, Bible prophecy can look like a jumble. You read through things in your daily readings, and you come up with this and that. You have uh, dyed garments from Basra. You have Gog in Ezekiel 38. You have the March of the Rainbowed Angel in uh, Revelation 10, and you start to wonder, where in the world does all this fit in? And of course, Bible prophecy from these principal prophets uh, with these vivid imagery, Daniel, Zechariah, and then John's Apocalypse, requires really an understanding of the truth, does it not? You don't take a rookie and start him out on a study of Revelations, and I would suggest you don't do that in a study of Zechariah either. Now the familiar phrase before us on the overhead which references our vision from Proverbs 29 is rendered, and vision is rendered, mental sight, a vision, a revelation, oracles, a prophecy. So our vision has to have an understanding and a working knowledge of Bible prophecy Otherwise, it's a hodgepodge, and it's a muddle. Prophecy, then, is the glue that helps to bind our doctrinal truths. It helps to sustain us when we're down and gloomy, when it's a cold winter day, when things are kind of rough going emotionally or otherwise. It has to be something that we can go to, and I go to these visions, and I pull them up in my mind, and I can zone out and I can take a 30-second trip if I need a little boost. John said in John chapter 13, Now I tell you before it come then, when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am He. You can't take Jesus out of Bible prophecy, and you can't take Bible prophecy out of Jesus and relegate Him to a teaching of good works and human con. Uh, context and human application. He is entwined with the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, after all, the first verse of Bible prophecy is regarded as Genesis 3.15. 
How do you take Bible prophecy out of Genesis 3.15? Resolution doesn't come until the end of the millennium, does it? It's a contest ages long of, of hostility, of enmity, and it cries out for fulfillment. And it's a verse of application and process. Bible, proce- Bible prophecy is process. Since the Almighty rules in the kingdoms of men, prophecy is not a prediction of historical events. The Almighty is history, isn't he? Therefore, as the ruler of history, his prophecy is a prediction of historical events that he knows, allows, and manipulates to come about. Now, The nation of Israel today is clearly on the anvil of God. To her enemies, she is being readied for destruction by the great mountain that was looming before Zerubbabel, referenced in Zechariah 4.7. We'll talk about what makes up the contents of this great mountain. She is being readied for deliverance by her own arm to those of us who are watching carefully. And She is striving for an acceptable place amongst the nations based upon her own design. Now, over the past 30 years, there have been a number of prophetic interpretations that have been put forth which serve to only muddle our traditional prophetic outlook. And end times events, especially surrounding the return of our Messiah, need to be clear in our mind. Because the danger in embracing a false prophetic interpretation is that we feel like we have the luxury of waiting to see a fleece before we decide I'll kick into after jet and try and affect my salvation. But the, but the thing is, if Christ returns with his saints, it's over. And we have no more time to rest and feel that we can generate a kick or sprint toward the finish line. Then, the mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in is all part of this prophetic fulfillment. It was not a plan B. We have a number of misleading prophecies that have popped up on the scene in the last 30 or 40 years. We have the book Apocalypse for Every Man by A.D. Norris. The interpretation was over 95% into the future. The sixth and the seventh seals, the trumpets, the vials were all relegated to the future. It means that God left his Gentile remnant about 1,800 years of a blank or of no sign or no encouragement. The opening verse of Revelation states, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now, this is complementary to Amos 3.7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets, and Zechariah is one of those prophets. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Think not that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but I have come to fulfill. Consequently, Jesus realized 
the prophetic necessity of understanding the law, his role in it, and the prophets. Now, in his book, A Revelation, a Biblical Approach, by Harry Whitaker, we have a preacherist or preterist interpretation set forth. So, aside from the vials being relegated to the future, the symbols are applied almost entirely to the nation of Israel. The seals and the trumpets were all judgments on the land and people um, at the time of 70 A.D. So you can see how this uh, exposition identifies the harlot of Revelation in terms of what? In terms of Jerusalem and the modern Israel. This interpretation changes all the historical roots laid for us in the Old Testament. All the players are a new batch. The political power of the Church of Rome is now finished. It's history. The influence of historical Babylon is now dust. Where and what's the fourth beast of Daniel? What is the iron fleck mixed with the clay toes? In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, who is that wicked one whom the Lord will consume with the brightness of his coming? Is it Israel? Where is the link now between Babylon and mystery Babylon the Great? And like the apocalypse for every man, Whitaker provides no prophetic word for his brethren from the 2nd century to the 20th century. It's vital in this interpretation then that the apocalypse was given to John before 70 A.D. Consequently, there is much genuflexing to make uh, the giving of the revelation to John prior to 70 A.D. And we know that the apocalypse has been pretty much documented to have been given to John on the Isle of Patmos around 96 A.D. There was another futurist theory put forth in the Exploring the Apocalypse and the Future by Watkins. He was similar to the other two in that, like Norris, he placed revelations well into the future. And like Whitaker, he associates it almost entirely with Israel, especially modern Israel. Israel is to become a world-dominating power, even oppressing all nations, persecuting the saints, blaspheming and fighting against Christ, the little horn of Daniel 7, the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2, and the beasts that make war with the saints are all applied to modern-day Israel. Now, in addition to these three main interpretations, there are hybrids, we would call them, representing a weave of all of these. And the net result is for many to say, even though prophecy makes up over 60% of Scripture, it's not that important. We all need to lighten up a little bit. The danger is very Laodicean, and we are in the Laodicean ecclesial phase, where apathy reigns, where there's a loss of zestos for Christ's return. There's a tendency to lapse into the routine of the day, and if one does not um, buy into the Jewish calendar, which is off by over 240 years, one has a tendency to say it's down the road a ways, a long time down the road. So this class, for your reference, will 
adhere to the continual historical approach. My Bible readings will be out of the Schofield Bible, and it'll be the historical approach as set forth by our pioneer brethren. I feel you need to understand that before you take the liberty of embracing any other theory and teaching of prophecy. As the end time draws down, their insight, our pioneer brethren, has proven to be remarkably accurate. The fact that they wrote in the mid-1800s when prophecy was being debated by other Christian writers and they shared similar interpretations does not discredit their conclusions. I prefer to emphasize the positive of that rationale. I would rather conclude that their contemporaries had come to some correct interpretations as they had. Now, a befuddled student might say prophetic interpretation is something the elder brethren like to argue over. Christ's return will resolve everything anyway, whether I understand it or not. But you know, the little phrase, death resolves everything, has application there too. Because if we miss the boat in terms of our attitude and our preparation and our zestos, one may be caught up short. Human tendency to relax our urgency until we see a fleece is something we all have to, have to wrestle against. We all get motivated, don't we? We all get very serious when the timeline draws short. The things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ is what all of us here were baptized on, presumably. The things concerning is Bible prophecy regarding the concept of the, king, the kingdom. The name of Jesus Christ, of course, represents another bulk of Scripture, um, the atonement, uh, which Brother Dick exhorted us on last night, teachings of Christ, applications in that realm. You can't take and separate that and say, I'm going to learn the name of Jesus Christ, but I'll, I'll tackle the things concerning the kingdom of God when I'm a little bit older. So we put it all together. Now, the truth has also been historically muddled by the Roman Catholic Church to deflect and to counter the Protestant charges made in the Reformation, and even to this day, that the Catholic Church has supported continued misinformation campaigns to further deflect the interpretations of Revelations. This has been carried out principally through her Jesuit arm, which is her contemporary and her medieval terrorist arm, the Jesuits. A Spanish Jesuit named Alcazar started the idea of a first century fulfillment involving the Jewish nation. Rabira, another Spanish Jesuit, presented his futurist theory in 1580. Imagine that, 1580. Another Jesuit named Lacunza, writing under the false name of Rabbi Ben Ezra, did the most damage in turning the historical approach away from the Roman Catholic Church and in pointing the finger toward other interpretations. And the Protocols of Zion, as you know, surfaced um, 
at the end of the 1800s coming out of Russia to help feed the persecution under the Bolshevik revelation and the protocols of the pillars of Zion, as you know, was this economic Jewish plot that the Jews were out to take over the world economically. And that still has sting to it because the Jew, by necessity, in his fleeing and finding refuge throughout the Middle Ages, was able to survive because of his monetary and money-changing skills and the capacity to pack up his portable little scales and, and quickly flee and enter the banking and economic scene in another country. An example was when he fled Spain under the Inquisition there and went into other parts of Europe. So, this foolishness has surfaced in Berkeley in California 10 years ago. It surfaced recently by the Mufti of Jerusalem, and he was quickly shot down because those protocols have now been accepted as fraud. So, the sin, there is a sin system, which is a phrase that represents the kingdoms of men as they oppose the kingdom of God. And we have anti-Semitism is another huge cloudy doctrine that has been a byproduct of the kingdoms of men throughout history. Constantine's mother Helena did much to propagate what has now become full-blown anti-Semitism. She became very enthralled with the crucifixion of Christ. And she sent uh, delegates to Jerusalem. And she even claimed to have found the very cross that Christ was crucified on. And she reportedly took it back to Germany, where it became a shrine of sorts. And she's the one that propagated calling the Jew the devil and who saddled him with the title Christ Killer. And so you see how this is our understanding of Constantine and the budding of Catholicism under Constantine from 312 on became a doctrine or cornerstone of that apostasy. So we have ample documentation of the role of the Catholic Church as a persecutor or diabolos of the movement of Christ. Now here's a quote from Eliot who published Hora Apocalyptica in 1844, about five years before Alpus Israel was published, quoting, When first I began to give attention to the subject some 20 years ago, there was the increasing prevalence among Christian men in our country to embrace the futurist system of apocalyptic interpretation, an interpretation which involved the abandonment of the opinion held by all the chief fathers and doctrines of our church respecting the Roman popes and popedom as the great intended anti-Christian power of scriptural prophecy that suggested to me the desirableness and indeed the necessity of a more thorough and careful investigation of the whole subject than had been made previously, end quote. So we now have, don't we, uh, long quotes and two books by Alan Iyer, one entitled Brethren in Christ and the Protesters, which documents the 
accounts of the medieval brethren under trial, persecution unto death, and we have lists and copies of original documents that Al and I are pulled out of libraries in, in Europe that are original quotes of their doctrines and their principles that they were willing to die for, and they read like a statement of faith that we're familiar with today. Now, returning to our subject then, I want to take a most interesting journey through these prophecies of Zechariah. And I hope you'll catch the I hope you'll catch the spirit of it and the excitement of it and don't make them overcomplicated. Your mind needs to feed on them and with passing months and years those visions will plump up for you as you feed them. In the spirit of 1 Corinthians 14:3 then this class is given but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and to comfort. And prophecy, I submit, is comforting. So, let's get into it. Zechariah the prophet was contemporary with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, and therefore he represented the civil authority in the rebuilding of the temple project after the 70 years captivity in Babylon. Joshua was the high priest, and so he represents the religious contingency, civil and religious, king, priest. We know how Christ will fulfill that, don't we? The 70 years captivity in Babylon is over. Babylon has now fallen under the hand of Cyrus, which we know is rendered like the heir. So we look at him and we say we see a type of Christ there and what he fulfilled. And he thus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 200 years prior to that event. So reading from Isaiah 44:28, Who saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundations shall be laid. So, Cyrus, we know, types the work of Jesus. And he stole into Babylon the great, and he circumvented the rivers, the great rivers that encompassed the foundation of Babylon, representing and typical of the rivers of humanity. And he begins to lay siege to the kingdoms of men just as historical Babylon was taken through the water course. Jesus, upon his return, will assume and will assemble his spiritual household. His spiritual household is referenced in Scripture as the Israel of God. This is the new creation who through faith and covenant will be resurrected out of every dispensation. And this will also instigate the building of the great Ezekiel's temple, destined to be a house of prayer for all nations. So with the fall of historical Babylon, that dispensation closes. And now the prophetic antitype seen in the prophecies of Zechariah project us into the apocalypse where the fall of mystery, Babylon the Great, that great whore, that great system 
and that great looming mountain which is destined to become a plain. And you recall that great looming mountain in Zechariah was standing before Zerubbabel. So this means that it will be there full-blown upon his resurrection. And we'll look at that because it's standing there in our face right now. Now, 49,697 Israelis, Jews, correction, Hebrews, elected to return to Israel after that captivity. Cyrus had given the temple vessels to these returnees, and he had given them a large sum of money. There were Samaritans in the land, you recall. Samaritans were the Assyrians' idea of transplanting conquered peoples into other nations to allow them to take root there, the theory being they would disrupt any organized political rebellion. There are Samaritans in Israel today, are there not? The Samaritans there represent a host of Muslim which have trickled out of the, the various Chechnya and the various fractured satellite countries of the Soviet. There is a strong European presence there. There are outright terrorists and riffraff that have drained out of surrounding countries. There are politicians there from the United States and from every country in Europe. And they have done just that. They have served to disrupt many activities and many organized efforts at progress within Israel. Now, in chapter 1 of Zechariah, we have the identity then of the author, and we're told that um, it was the eighth month in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. So it was in the 11th month of 519 B.C. that Zechariah received these visions. And when you look at the name of Zechariah, it's rendered, Yah hath remembered. His father's name, Barakiah, Yah hath blessed. And his grandfather, Ido at the appointed time. So Yahweh will remember and he will bless at the appointed time. And that was happening and that was being filled out at that time frame when the temple foundation was being laid and when the work had begun. But we need to project it into the near future as well because Yahweh is on a timeline and there's nothing that will thwart that timeline. Now, because these visions are very warlike and aggressive, I want to consider and get a little grip on God's wrath and vengeance. Because if you spring these on somebody who is starting to ruminate on the truth, they're going to look at you and think you're awfully bloodthirsty. These visions do portray the vengeance and wrath of God. 
Our understanding of the battle of Genesis 3.15 dictates, it mandates, and it cries out for an ages-long struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so this enmity factor is in play continuously. Now, when we look in Romans 12, verse 19, we have this saying that we're familiar with. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Vengeance, 1557, is rendered a retribution, vindication, to punish. Vine renders vengeance as that which proceeds out of justice. That's an important phrase to know. That which proceeds out of justice. Justice, in turn, is rendered to avenge, to decide, mentally or judicially, to call into question. So you see how this builds. Now we have another reference that we'll pick a couple of words out of. And that's Revelations 14, verse 9 and 10. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So now we'll pick out a couple more words. Wrath comes from 2372, and that draws in turn from 2380 in Strong's, and is rendered to breathe hard, fierceness, to smoke, to sacrifice, to slaughter. Another word, indignation, number 3709 in Strong's, is rendered an internal swelling a bursting forth of anger and wrath as through justifiable abhorrence. So now you put all these words together that we've considered here, and we might have a little thought that would read like this. Deity's wrath has been held in check throughout the dispensations, but is now building to burst forth in divine retribution for all of the blasphemy and the wickedness committed against his holy name, his son, his plan and purpose, and his nation Israel. The crucifixion of Jesus has taught us that no one defeats the dominion of darkness in a bloodless coup. The final victory over the kingdoms of men will not merely ooze into existence. His kingdom will be established by the sword. Secular love today is really humanism, and it's humanism which emphasizes tolerance. This is found in contemporary Christianity today. The, the Christian church today tends to mute this biblical note of tolerance and love as a way of precipitating or generating the kingdom of God 
We have seen this rationale applied to the reunion effort. If we can only strike a reunion, then we can prepare things or even enhance the return of Christ. Here, for example, is a Christian secular hymn. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. We know that the only way that the kingdom will be established will be by the sword. And this then is what we have to get our minds around as we start to bridge through these prophecies. Now, the prophecies of Zechariah then on the overhead will be fulfilling three basic points. The first point is that there will be a punishment of systemic and unrepentant evil. The second point is that the means by which the world is to be cleansed is portrayed and taught in these visions. And thirdly, the method by which the kingdom of God replaces the kingdoms of men will be taught as well. So this then will be considered as we progress. Now, we have Zechariah 1, verse 12 before us. And reading snippets of that. O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? Now, if the prayer could be with that urgency to now restore and rebuild things after a 70-year sojourn in Babylon, imagine how the wrath, the, the judicial wrath of Yahweh has been building from that time through the present. So we come up on our first vision of Zechariah, and it's in and basically encompasses verse 7 to 17. So let me just read that into the record. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, hence we have comparison here drawn to the night visions that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Night i.e. events in the long Gentile darkness that were to follow. And behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were there red horses, sorrel and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel who talked with me said unto me, I will show these what these are. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered, and then and they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years. And the Lord answered the angel that talked 
with me with good words and comforting words. So the angel that talked with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very much displeased with the nations that are at rest, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Makes us think of Psalm 83, does it not? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So, the four horsemen then, standing amongst the myrtle trees, are bloodied. And they represent really a culmination of the seventh vision that we'll consider in depth in Zechariah chapter 6. So you see how this completes a little circle of prophecy fulfilled. In the first vision, these four horsemen standing among the myrtle trees in the bottom or the shade are looking out both to the immediate scene, the immediate scene of the necessity to restore the decimated temple at the time of Zerubbabel, and we can also project it into this end time where we are looking into the very near future and we are contemplating events and we are contemplating the tremendous struggle that the kingdom will be established and we are tasting and sensing the peace that will follow and the great Ezekiel's temple that will follow upon that. Now there's animosity reflected here because it makes reference to the other nations that are at rest that are beholding the dilemma or situation of Zion. And that's the situation today. Israel is struggling for her very existence. She is on the anvil. Nations have taken counsel and craft against her, saying, come, let us, let us cut her off from becoming a nation. The, the reference in Psalms 83. And they are ready and salvating over her bones. Give us enough time and we'll drive this nation into the sea. And of all things, it's even projected that one will have to survive and one will have to go off into oblivion. No one's saying that that has to be Israel, but that's what's being referenced behind the scene, even Condoleezza Rice. The color of these horses suggests various aspects of war. The color of red, of course, is bright bloodshed, bright and traumatic trauma. You have a speckled or a sorrel horse referenced by bloodshed, and it's the aftermath of catastrophic battles. It's the famine. It's the slow death. It's the dying of the wounded and the injured. You have pestilence. You have a leprous state referenced by the white one. So what this does, the colors of these horsemen, it allows for all manners of warfare to be poured out in God's gen vengeance and wrath. It allows for campaigns of traditional weaponry 
with natural Israel combined with Christ and the saints. And it also allows for catastrophic and supernatural events which the Almighty will be able to rain down such as hail, perhaps, about a talent's weight. Thunder, flood, lightning, magnetic thunderstorms, you nail it, you name it. So the man in the forefront was described as one cent. And in verse 10, he is referenced as the angel in verse 10 and 11. And both are representative of Christ as the captain of the host. And I said this was really a companion vision of the last vision in Zechariah 6, verses 1 to 8. These are the cherubim saints of God. These are the four living ones of the apocalypse. These are the four cherubim of Ezekiel. These are the four spirits of the heavens and they are the four carpenters in the second vision. So in that way, the seven visions represents a completion of events and it ushers in the peace of the kingdom age, which is what this vision is really depicting. Myrtle trees are representative of resurrection. They're an ornamental tree shrub. They give off a fragrance. They have supple boughs which were found in the infrastructure of the which are found in the infrastructure of the little booths which will be made as we enter into the kingdom age. So we will tie this into the last vision when we get to there. So we'll end on that note.